have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. This is where we pick up the story of Elijah, who kind of appears out of nowhere, actually from somewhere, but uh, he appears in the text from Tishbe, and he is going to challenge the king of Israel. Chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Elijah from Tishbe, who was one of the settlers in Gilead, said to Ahab, who was the king, As surely as the Lord lives, Israel's God, the one I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain these years unless I say so. Then the Lord's word came to Elijah. Go from here and turn east. Hide by the Cherith brook that faces the Jordan River. You can drink from the brook. I've also ordered the ravens to provide for you there. Elijah went and did just what the Lord said. He stayed by the Cherith brook that faced the Jordan River. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the mornings and evenings. He drank from the Cherith brook. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The Lord's word came to Elijah. Get up and go to Zarephath near Sidon and stay there. I've ordered a widow there to take care of you. Elijah left and went to Zarephath. As he came to the town gate, he saw a widow collecting sticks. He called out to her, Please get a little water for me in this cup so I can drink. She went to get some water. He then said to her, Please get me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any food, only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in a bottle. Look at me, I'm collecting two sticks so that I can make some food for myself and my son. We'll eat the last of the food and then die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do what you said. Only make a little loaf of bread for me first, then bring it to me. You can make something for yourself and your son after that. This is what Israel's God, the Lord, says. The jar of flour won't decrease and the bottle of oil won't run out until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. The widow went and did what Elijah said. So the widow, Elijah, and the widow's household ate for many days. The jar of flour didn't decrease, nor did the bottle of oil run out, just as the Lord spoke through Elijah. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. The story kind of comes in the midst of the text and marks a shift in what we've been seeing so far. Last week, we talked about monarchy. We talked about David's royal line, that God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And we said that that forever meant that it was Jesus, David's greatest royal descendant, who will reign on the throne forever. We also learned that uh, the rest of that line up into the exile was not so holy, There were a lot of kings, most of whom were pretty bad. And when we start here in chapter 16, 17 of 1 Kings, we learn that Ahab was among the baddest of the bad. Now remember, after Solomon dies, his kingdom splits in two. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. This story takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel. And... uh, Ahab has become king. He reigned for 22 years, the Bible tells us. And the Bible tells us also that he was worse than all the kings that came before him. In fact, it says this twice, which means he was really bad. 
And why was Ahab so bad? Well, a couple of reasons. One was because he married badly. Remember what we said last week about what kings are not supposed to do from Deuteronomy 17? They're not to amass gold or chariots, guns, <laughs> or girls, right? So, so Ahab, gold, guns, and girls, bad things for the king to amass. And so Ahab marries a person who is not Jewish. She is actually Phoenician. If you know anything about the Phoenicians from the ancient world, they were kind of a seafaring people, lived along the coast. And she's also a pagan. Her name is Jezebel. When someone, we call someone a Jezebel in our culture, this is where the story comes from. She is the quintessential evil queen, the wicked stepmother, all of them rolled into one. And she's wicked because she worships these gods of the Canaanites and causes Ahab to do so as well. Ahab's kind of like, okay, I guess I will. And so she kind of is pulling the strings behind Ahab. Ahab builds mighty cities. He built up Megiddo as a fortress. He had all the stuff that a king is not supposed to have, including a wife who was turning him away from the gods of Israel. She worshipped the gods Baal and Asherah. Now, Baal if you know your ancient Canaanite mythology, which I'm sure all of you do, Baal was the storm god. He was the one who was supposed to bring rain, and Asherah was his consort, and she was the goddess of fertility. And together, they kind of made things happen. They made nature work. Well, Elijah comes on the scene as the prophet of God, and here we see the narrative kind of shift away from kings to prophets. And the prophet Elijah comes on and he says, there's going to be no rain. Which means, what? That God was going to shut Baal up. And there will be no rain on the land. This is a way of teaching Ahab and Jezebel that God is still in control. Well, Elijah pronounces the drought. And prophets at this point say things that the king doesn't like. And the, being a prophet in the ancient world is very dangerous. We're going to talk about Jonah next week, and we'll see just how dangerous it can become. Because you're speaking the truth to power. And so Elijah comes out of the desert, gives this word to Ahab and Jezebel, and then God immediately says, I want you to, to run away and go hide. And you're going to hide at the Wadi Cherith, which is, which is actually a, a place down near the Jordan River. Now, if you know your Middle Eastern geography, you know that a wadi is kind of like a dry stream bed. When it rains, the wadi is a, kind of a gully that brings water down to the river. But when it's dry, it's just a dry rivulet that comes down. So here Elijah is hiding out in the wadi, and it says that the ravens brought him food. God said, I have instructed the ravens to bring food for you day and night. And so here are these ravens bringing him food. Amazing story, right? Miraculous. But think about what ravens eat. Anyone? Roadkill. That's right. The ancient version of roadkill. So God provides for Elijah, but not in this extravagant sort of way. I mean, they are not bringing him Chick-fil-A bags in the desert. That, that for me is extravagant, you know. Where does your family like to eat out? Any place that comes in a bag, that's where we're, that's us. We're right there. 
So they're not bringing him Chick-fil-A. They're bringing him meat and bread, stuff that they found. Now, ravens also have the benefit of being unclean ritually because they eat carrion. So God is using a very surprising way of providing for Elijah out there in the desert. There's nothing there, but Elijah is cared for. He is given his daily bread in an unusual way. Well, he stays there for quite a while until the wadi dries up because of the drought. And then God sends Elijah on another mission. He says, I want you to go to Zarephath in Sidon. Sidon is Jezebel's home area. God sends him into the belly of the beast. This is the place which is Baal's home territory. And he goes there and and he encounters. God says, "I, I have instructed a widow there to feed you when you get there. Just like the ravens who are unclean ritually, this Gentile woman is going to feed you. Well, when we read the text, one of the things we realize is that, that while God said to Elijah, I told this widow to feed you, she apparently did not get the memo. <laughs> he shows up at the town gate. As he came to the town gate, he saw a widow collecting sticks, and he called out, please get a little water for me. Now, in the Middle East, when someone asks you for something, you are duty-bound, hospitality, to give it to them, even if it's your last thing. So there's probably not a lot of water, but she gives him water. And then he says to her, please get me a piece of bread. And she outlines the problem. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she says, she acknowledges Elijah's God. Apparently that God has been getting a reputation around the Canaanites. As soon as, as, soon as we realize that, she sees him. She sees Elijah. She realizes he's a prophet of Yahweh. And she says, I don't have any food, only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in a bottle. Look at me, I'm collecting two sticks so that I can make some food for myself and my son. We'll eat the last of it and then we'll die. That is pretty desperate. Down to her last meal. She is already one of the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. Remember, we've talked about widows and orphans, that there was no uh, means to care for them. Jesus and and God throughout the scripture are talking about caring for the widow and the orphan because they are so vulnerable. She is vulnerable. She's down to her last meal. It doesn't get any worse than this. She's finding the last couple of sticks to make a last meal and then die. So what does Elijah do? Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do what you said. Only make a little loaf of bread for me first then bring it to me. You can make something for yourself and your son after that. Now, we read this as modern people, and we go, how dare he? Who is this guy? What is his deal? I mean, give me your last bit of food. Really. It'll be fine. Well, remember where Elijah has just come from. He has just come from being fed by ravens in the middle of nowhere. Why? Because God made it happen. And Elijah realizes that God will provide if we trust him. So he says to the widow this. This is what Israel's the Lord, God the Lord says. The jar of flour won't decrease and the bottle of oil won't run out until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. 
In other words, if you give this to me, I guarantee you, you're going to have your daily bread. That jar of oil is going to stay right where it is, and that little bit of flour is going to stay right where it is. You're going to have enough to sustain you day after day after day, but you have to invest first. Trust in the Lord, my God. He can be your God, too. This reminds me of a very old story. Some of you have probably heard it. But there was a man once lost in the desert. He was about to die of thirst. He stumbles across an old shack. And outside the shack, there is an old rusty water pump. Desperate, he goes to the pump and he pumps furiously, trying to see if he can get any water to come out, but none comes out. Just a little bit of rust spits out from the nozzle. He collapses into the sand in desperation, preparing to die when he notices a glint of something glass buried in the sand. He wipes away the sand and he pulls out a jar that is full, a large mason jar, full to the brim with water. Desperately, he begins to unscrew the cap of the jar to drink down the water when he notices that there's a note attached to it. And the note says this, you have to use all the water in the jar in order to prime the pump then you will have enough water to sustain you. The man faces a choice. He is thirsty now, desperate now, pouring that water down that pump and having it not work means that he will surely die. He can drink it now, sustain himself for a little while, who knows how long, Or he can have water in abundance. I love telling the story with youth groups because the kids always talk about what they're going to do. You know, they divide right down the middle. I drink it now. I'm going to wait. I'm going to pour it down. Oh, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? This is, you know, we go back and forth. What do you do? He thinks about it for a long time and finally he pours the water down the pump. And he pumps desperately. Nothing happens until eventually there is a drop and then a trickle and then a stream. And he fills up his canteen and he fills everything he can possibly find that will hold water. And lastly, he fills up the jar, puts the cap on it, and he takes a piece of charcoal that he found and he writes an addition to the note. He writes underneath, he says, it really works. (laughs) It really works. You have to give it all in away in order to receive the abundance. And I love that story because, like the story of the widow, it's the story of the difference between seeing scarcity and seeing abundance. I mean, we're kind of trained to to be scarcity people, aren't we? The world is constantly telling us that we do not have enough. Advertisers count on it. You don't have this thing, man, you are so far behind. You don't have this thing, how can you possibly survive? We live in a world where everything seems to be scarce, the resources are scarce, and and we wonder, can we have enough? The jar versus the well. 
But throughout the scriptures, God is constantly inviting people to think in terms of abundance rather than scarcity. This story is one of those incidences. Give me a little bread and you'll have enough to sustain you. Jesus, all we have, these five loaves and two fish, there's 10,000 people out here. They only count the men, 5,000, but there's like 10,000 people out here. How are we going to feed them? Five loaves and two fish. Jesus says, give me what you got. Scarcity versus abundance. See, the point here is not that God gives us lavish stuff. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not a preacher telling you, hey, give more because I deserve a bigger jet. Have you seen that stuff going on out there? Have you seen that? Uh, I don't have one. Um, I've got a 2003 Dodge truck out there. We think we deserve more abundance. If you just give a little, God will bless you. God will pour out his riches upon you. No, what does God promise? He promises enough. Enoughness. A word I just made up, but there it is. The widow is invited to faith that there will be enough to invest so that there will be enough. Verse 15, it says, The widow went and did what Elijah said. And so the widow, Elijah, and the widow's household ate for many days. The jar of flour didn't decrease, nor did the bottle of oil run out, just as the Lord spoke through Elijah. She was sustained because she had faith. This story is so powerful that Jesus himself will refer to it again. A few weeks from now, After Christmas, we'll read from Luke's gospel. That's where the narrative lectionary will take us. It will take us into the gospel of Luke. Well, we'll read the first sermon that Jesus gives there in Nazareth, where he announces his mission. He quotes from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. And then he goes on to tell some stories. He's looking at his own people, faithful Israelites, and he says, remember that back in the days of Elijah, there were lots of widows in the land of Israel. But whom did God sustain? This widow from Zarephath, a Gentile, an unclean person, because she had faith. Later on, In Luke 17, Jesus will be at the temple and he will see a widow come in with a small coin and she will drop the coin in the offering plate. And Jesus says, she has given more than all of those who poured in massive amounts of money because she gave out of her poverty. She gave out of faith. This was her daily bread and she's trusting God to sustain her. See, over and over again, we learn that it's often the poorest of the poor who are the most generous because they know that which they lack. And whatever they have, they want to share. They think abundance where we see scarcity. You know, this is uh, our stewardship 
season. And uh, usually for those of us in the church, that causes anxiety. I mean, it, it causes anxiety in the finance committee because they're starting to put the budget together for the next year for the church. And so we wonder about scarcity. What will we have to cut? What, 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 hopefully we'll get enough to be able to sustain us. We, we really look at that. What, what's that, what's that going to be like? And there's wringing of hands and, and will the pledge cards come in and will people give and, and how are we going to do that? But at the same time, the people in the church are looking at the pledge card and going, do I have enough? Can I, can I do this? So what, what am I going to do? Uh, how, how, do I, how do I give in a way that, that, that matters but at the same time, you know, I, I've got all these other obligations I've got to maintain. What am I going to do? I know. I mean, we're there too. We've got one kid in college. We've got one getting ready to go. It is easy to look at scarcity at our house. But a few years ago, when I became a solo pastor after years of being an associate, one of the convictions I had that we had as a family was that if we were going to talk about stewardship, that I had to lead the way and do what... God says to think about tithing, 10% off the top given to God as his. In the book of Malachi, which we explored during our Minor Prophet series, which I'm sure you remember really well, um, Malachi is chastising the people, saying, God thinks you're robbing him. How are we robbing him? Because you're not bringing the tithe into the storehouse, God says. God says, look, if you bring the tithe and test me, test me in this, he says. If you give out of your scarcity, will I not open the windows of heaven and bring to you blessing and give you enough to sustain you? And we decided to test that promise. And so we started tithing my salary, gross salary. Some people argue, is it taxable or net? You know, how does that work? What does that look like? I'm not that good at math, so we do the gross, it's just easier. And when we started doing that, we had to make some adjustments around that. You know, you, you adjust your lifestyle to do that. Um, and, you know, when you have kids go off to college, you adjust your lifestyle to do that. I mean, we don't have cable. I miss ESPN. I'm telling you, I really do but we don't have it. But we believe that when we are faithful, God is faithful. And I will tell you that since we've been tithing for the last 13 years, there has always been enough. I can't explain to you how it works. I don't know what happens, but somehow when there's a big expense, we have something unexpected happen and we have enough. As someone who doesn't do math well, it's miraculous to me. Jennifer actually keeps the book. She knows what's coming in and out. But, but it's one of those things that I don't always understand. The only thing I can say is that when we are faithful, God is faithful. God says, give it to me first. And you will have enough daily bread to sustain you. Trust me. And there will be enough. We look at the jar, instant gratification versus the well of God's abundance.
Jesus uses this widow as an example of faith. We're trusting God this year. Again, I want to invite you to live out of God's abundance as well. Some of you are going, I'm not sure about that. I'm pretty mad at the denomination right now. I think I might withhold this year. Guess what? It's not conditional. Our denomination is struggling with covenant breaking, but we're not going to do that as a church. We're going to continue to give what we said we would. We're going to continue to invest because we believe that God is at work and that God will take what we give and use it for his glory, regardless of what others might do. We're going to continue to give in faith because we know that in the end, God wins and that all will be made new. So I want to challenge you as we challenge ourselves every year to prime the pump, to test God like this widow, this mighty, mighty widow, and give and watch what God does with what you give. Let us pray.